Well, it's a joy to be back with you this week after being gone a week. I appreciate Omar filling in for me last week, and uh, it's always a joy to, to go and to, uh, to be used of the Lord in, in another context as I was down in South Carolina, where they know how to speak proper English. Um, it's good to be down there with a friend of mine who's a pastor of a church down there preaching uh, there in his church for uh, about five different times this past week, and it was, be a, it was a blessing to be there. It's a blessing to always return, though, to your own church family, and uh, looking forward very much to being back with you this morning. You know, as I grew up in the South, and specifically in Northeast Tennessee, I grew up in an area where there were churches everywhere. I mean, everybody was a Christian, not really, but if you were to talk to people, very few people would have claimed anything contrary to the fact. In fact, uh, I would often be uh, talking with extended family members of church members, people who I'd never seen in church, and, and they would certainly claim to be I belong to such and such church, and yet they have not darkened the door of that particular church, maybe since they were a kid. Uh, They claim to have uh, faith in Christ, which did not seem to evidence itself, but the point being, I would be in a context, in a culture there, that everyone either went to church or they knew they were supposed to go to church. That's just how it worked. I mean, we were in a place, and I think uh, the, the, the county I lived in and am from, I mean, literally, we, we talk about churches being on every corner. There literally were. There were points in my hometown where you can see just steeples everywhere. Uh, typically, it began with one steeple and just uh, multiplied, not through church planting or multi-site or whatever, but through division. And so we would multiply by people uh, deciding they wanted this and that and breaking off and doing their own thing. But the idea growing up that one might suffer as a Christian never crossed my mind. It just didn't. In fact, growing up in a culture that was saturated with, with Christianity, albeit a cultural Christianity, the idea that one might suffer for the cause of the gospel was really nowhere on my radar screen. Never really thought much about it. And yet we live in a day, and we have always lived in, in an era, I think even since the early church, where Christians suffer. We live in a day today where sermons are being subpoenaed and ministries being threatened and on and on we can go. In fact, we know that in other nations, Christians continue to be imprisoned and slaughtered. Today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church Providentially, we are returning this morning back to Matthew as we've been working through that, taking quite a long break from it, and back in chapter 14 today, and we're reminded of the cost of following Christ. You know, we, we, we are aware of, of, of suffering to some extent. We, we're aware of, of the believers suffering in places like Iran or Afghanistan or Pakistan or maybe even China. We know that they endure terrible things and bad things, but I wonder how, how much we really understand the comprehensive nature of suffering and persecution today. 
There's some information out on our ministry connection table I would encourage you to, to get this morning or at least make yourself aware of before you leave if you haven't already. I mean, we can, we can be aware of the suffering in these places, but, but we often forget about the other places, the people of Bhutan or Vietnam or Nigeria or India or Sudan or Colombia or places in Mexico. Just recently, our partner church, Good News Church in Kishnau, Moldova, has been kicked out of the school in which they met because now they have an atheist principal and the principal didn't want anything to do with the church there. So now they're homeless, basically, looking for a place to meet. We're getting ready to, uh, to work more with the unreached people of uh, northern Thailand, refugees from Burma in these camps, construction camps, where we have already seen some Very few, but some people come to Christ, and even those few people who have come to Christ already in the city of Chiang Mai are undergoing persecution, some being physically beaten, some of which women have been beaten by their husbands because they've trusted in Christ and no longer are Buddhist. We could go on and on. I read just an article this past week regarding the situation in India. Back in August, uh, a leader of a Hindu fundamentalist group said this, the entire world recognizes Indians as Hindus. Therefore, India is a Hindu state. The cultural identity of all Indians is Hindutva and the presence, a form of uh, Hindu fundamentalism. And the present inhabitants of the country are descendants of this great culture, he says. So this Hindutva is, is this Hindu religious fundamentalism that, that's an ideology that, that says that all other religions are invalid. Just a few days before that, another leader in this particular group reported to the Hindu news that in December his organization plans to convert both Muslims and Christians to Hinduism in two separate programs. On December 23rd, they say, quote, we will convert Muslims to Hinduism in at least 50 locations. And on December 25th, the day when Christians convert people to their religion this year, we will do the reverse by converting them back to Hinduism. In two or three years, the rural hinterland of India will be free of all Christians. When asked how he would convince people to become Hindus, he said, it will be a test of who is stronger, Hindus or them. You just wait and watch. This is reality in 2014. Following Jesus is costly. It has always been the case, and it will always be the case until Christ returns. If you think for a moment that following Jesus will cost you nothing, then I'm not sure if you've been cared for properly or biblically informed or at least aware of what's going on in our world. Listen, following Jesus in our culture, let's just talk about the North American culture, mid-Atlantic culture. Following Jesus for you and for me will not get easier. It will only grow harder. 
So if you think that what we hear about today in other places will just sort of evaporate and go away, it will not. Following Jesus will not get easier. It will only get harder. Following Jesus is costly. Now, why is that? I want us to look at that question today. Why, why is following Jesus so costly? What is it, ultimately, that is true of the world in which we live that brings about the, the troubles and the persecutions that followers of Jesus Christ face today? And I would say have always faced. This is not something new. I mean, what we're talking about ultimately from a human standpoint, led to the crucifixion of our Savior. Yes, it was ordained by God to bring about salvation, but it was ultimately them wanting to put him away from a human perspective that led to the death of Jesus as well. Why is the spread of the gospel, why is the truth of Jesus Christ so opposed by the world. Well, I want us to look this morning at Matthew chapter 14. I think what we see in Matthew chapter 14 gives us some perspective and some help in understanding what it is we're up against because it's important for you and for me as believers to know what it is we're up against if we're going to be faithful and persevering in our faith as believers in Jesus Christ. It's certainly important, and we spend the bulk of our time knowing what we should be pursuing as Christians, making disciples and helping one another understand what the truth of God's Word says and teaches about what it means to be one that reflects the character and nature of Christ. But we also should understand what we're up against when it comes to the nature of this world. And I want us to see that in four particular ways this morning. Why are we so opposed by the world? Well, first of all, we're opposed because the world in which we live is a confused world. That's the understatement of the day, isn't it? It's a confused world. Here in Matthew chapter 14, we we see that the mission and ministry of Jesus had caught the attention of this man named Jesus. Herod. We also know him as Herod Antipas. He was one of four sons of Herod the Great. You remember Herod the Great who slaughtered the boys there in Bethlehem and just not, this family in general was not known for its kindness. Herod, in this particular passage, son of Herod the Great, he was really not a king, as, even though he thought himself in such terms. He was a leader of some sort, and, and he sort of thought more highly of himself than he probably should have, but, but he certainly had influence and had a position of leadership. And we come to this passage today, and in verse 1, it, we're told, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. The, the life and ministry of Jesus had now caught the attention of Herod. He was hearing more and more about this man, Jesus Christ. The impact and the influence and the works and the miracles that he was performing. The fame of Jesus had now reached Herod's desk, if you will. And he said, verse 2, to his servants, this must be John the Baptist. 
the very same person he had previously had beheaded for reasons we'll look at in just a bit later. But, but it, he's concerned here. He's, he's a bit confused even. Herod had put John the Baptist to death. We see the, the, the flashback of that event in the, remaining, or in the rest of the text. And now it's as if Herod is thinking John was back from the dead seeking revenge. Herod did not see Jesus for who he really was, but assumed it was John the Baptist back from the dead to bring revenge against him for chopping off his head. Now, Herod didn't just make this up. In fact, if you read in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 9, verse 7, it said, Now Herod heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. So he just didn't make that up himself. There was rumors out there that John had been raised from the dead. By some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And so Herod, sort of listening to the rumor mill of the day, knowing that he had put John to death, automatically assumed that, oh, this must be John that's back from the dead to come after me. He didn't see Jesus for the truth of who he really was. In fact, he pretty much ignored it. You know, the reality in Jesus' day is the same reality in our day. In some form or another, people in the world today, the world continues to be confused about the true person and nature of Christ. Many people, if not most, simply miss it when it comes to the true person and work of Jesus. Some see him merely as a great prophet or teacher. Others refer to him as a great miracle worker, while others just think he was simply a a good or great man that lived and died. It's actually the minority that get it right when it comes to the truth of who Jesus is, and even that is a work of God's Spirit. Matthew 16, verse 13 to Peter, and that section, 13 through 17, as Peter makes the great confession of who Christ is, Jesus ultimately says, Peter, you didn't come up with that on your own, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This was a work of God to, to make known to Peter the truth about Christ. The vast majority of the world don't get it right. Some do get it right, but that even in and of itself is a work of God's Spirit. It's a confused world. And friends, let that be a reminder to the church, to us, that it is imperative that you and I, as the bride of Christ, as the people of God, not only get it right when it comes to Christ, but we must communicate it right when it comes to Christ. We cannot afford to misrepresent or to, to, to share Jesus in a distorted way to the world. They're already confused. They don't need help. We must get it right and we must communicate the truth of who Jesus is. And friends, that is why we will often face opposition in the world. We are following someone that the world does not recognize or know or even remotely understand they've heard about him they 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 use his name all the time in conversation 
taken his name in vain, and but yet they truly don't know him. They really don't know that he is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the one who is eternal, the one that came and gave himself for sin so that we could be reconciled to God. They, they don't see him in that kind of way. And we do, again, testimony to the grace of God in our lives, to him be glory for that. But we will often face opposition in the world because the world does not recognize Jesus for who he is, and we do. It's a confused world. We live in a confused world when it comes to these matters. It's a confused world in many regards, but especially when it comes to Jesus, you and I cannot assume, please never do this, we cannot assume, even with our family members, and even with our closest friends, that they really get it when it comes to Christ. We cannot assume that. In fact, I would rather us assume that there's some level of confusion because that's most of the time the reality when it comes to Jesus. Even as growing Christians, sometimes we are still wrestling with aspects of who Jesus really is, and the world continues to live in blindness and deception. It's a confused world. Number two, it's a fearful world. One of the things that seems to be a concern for Herod is that he feels threatened by Jesus. You feel that weight here as you're reading this and you look at the other gospel accounts. There's this this threat that Jesus poses for Herod. He's he's a little fearful of Jesus' influence and impact because he's trying to influence and impact. And all of these people are, are, are talking about Jesus. He's the stir of the town, so to speak. In fact, Herod was not only confused, we're told in Luke's account, as I said earlier, he was perplexed, but he was also fearful that the fame of Jesus was going to cause him problems. That's apparent. He felt threatened. You know, friends, that's often the case with the world. When it responds to the presence of God's people and the advance of God's kingdom, The world doesn't know what to do when Christians, those who follow Jesus, who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, even when they're persecuted and and harmed and imprisoned and killed, when they they see that happening and yet the the kingdom of God, the, the spread of the gospel continues. They don't know what to do with that. See, Herod thought he he had sort of put an end to this stuff with with John and taking off his head and thought, okay, enough's enough there. But yet even now John is is dead, the the stirring continues. Of course, Jesus is carrying out his ministry, and even though John had been killed, the mission was still moving forward, and that was perplexing and caused Herod some fear. And it's a reminder that there's no level of threat or oppression that the world can bring to us that can hinder the cause and advancement of the gospel. The world can kill Christians by thousands. They can slaughter us by the millions. In fact, that's exactly what happened. Some slaughter, not so much here, but you remember years ago when when China closed its borders to, to the gospel, there was missionary work, and then all of a sudden, boom, closed door, and then... 20, 30 years later, realized that the church had exploded in growth. 
There are more Christians in China today than there are here in our own United States. And their borders are closed to the truth. Friends, no matter what you do, no matter how threatened people may feel concerning the cause and advancement of the gospel, it will always prevail and will always be advancing because God is the one who is behind the advance of his good news. And that should be of great encouragement to you and to me. No matter how threatened you are, no matter how persecuted you are, no matter how much difficulty and struggle you may face in your particular walk with Christ, and we can't pretend that people even in this room have, haven't suffered at some level, maybe not having your life threatened, but, but all of us have, have encountered some level of oppression and, and, and resistance to our faith Friends, do not let that discourage you, but be encouraged that no matter how much opposition you face, I face, the gospel will always prevail. The kingdom will advance no matter what happens, and that terrifies the world. They don't see it necessarily in the way we see it. They see it as a negative because they truly don't understand the nature of the gospel. And so they see it as a threat to their system. That's why so many communist countries close their doors because they see Christianity as a threat to their system and don't want to lose power over people. It's a fearful world. That's why we often face opposition. Number three, it's an offended world. Notice in this particular text in Matthew chapter 14, Herod gives us a flashback of what took place with John the Baptist. We read, verse 2, he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. And so he's confusing Jesus with John the Baptist resurrected. For Herod had seized John. Here's the flashback. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Now you need to understand something about Herod's family. It was a disaster. You think your family's messed up? Friends, read about Herod. They were really messed up. They they, they had quite a bit of interesting things going on. In fact, it was Herod that, that went after his own brother's wife and secured her, and John, being the man that he was, confronted Herod in that and said, you can't do that. It's not lawful for you to steal your brother's wife like that. that, that's, that's That's out of bounds. And so John's thrown into prison. That's what verse 3 tells us. Because John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. And though at that time, verse 5, Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the people. Those who were John's supporters because they held him to be a prophet and others who weren't necessarily his supporters but still esteemed him as a prophet kind of figure. Verse 6, but when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias, that was Philip's wife, his brother, Herod's brother previously, now Herod's wife, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. And prompted by her mother, her mother still a little bit bitter for her and Herod being called on the carpet for their adulterous activity. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. 
Verse 9 tells us, and the king was sorry. But because of his oaths and his guest, he commanded it to be given. John's ministry was quite a radical ministry. I mean, you just think about John the Baptist. I mean, he was a man that wore camel's hair and ate quite a strange diet, locust and wild honey. I think I've said this before. I don't know why I have Fred Flintstone imagine, you know, sort of the, the garments that he's wearing. Sorry if I've just ruined your perspective of John the Baptist forever. But he was a weird dude, okay? I mean, he, he wasn't your normal run-of-the-mill kind of guy. He, he dressed strange, he ate strange things, and, and yet he was a man who stuck unwaveringly to the truth and proclaimed the truth no matter what it cost him. He was not afraid. So he's put in prison, and then later, he loses his head. You know, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, I believe it is, it's referred to there as the church. We're, we're as God's people, referred to there as the church of the living God, and we're to be a pillar and buttress of truth. We're to be those who support and uphold the truth, not because the truth needs us, necessarily. We need the truth, and we are informed by the truth, but we are there to magnify and to uphold the truth to the world so that the world can know the reality of who God is and what their hope could be in Christ. As followers of Jesus Christ, friends, we are called. We are called to stand for the truth, and yes, will that offend the world? It will. It will. When you get serious about upholding the truth of the gospel and standing on the authority of God's word, people all around you are going to be offended. And, and I don't say that to, to, to encourage you to be some kind of obnoxious Christian. Obnoxious Christians get on my nerves. But you should be a Christian that is informed by the truth, that's unafraid to share the truth, and that in a right manner, in a right way, in a humble way, be that which stands on the truth and communicates the truth no matter what it may cost you in relationships, no matter what it may cost you any, at any point of your life. We should never apologize to the world that we have certain convictions. You don't see John backtracking as he's now being thrown into prison. Well, I didn't mean to offend you, Herod. John stood on the truth and was not afraid to share it. I'm reminded of John Bunyan, author of Pilgrim's Progress. He, he was put into prison for preaching, and he was told that he could be released at any point if he would just promise to quit preaching, and he chose, rather, to stay in jail because he said, if you let me out, I'm going to preach. I love the picture we see in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John and some of the other disciples there in Acts 4, really verses 5 through 20. But beginning in verse 18, after Peter and John had been arrested for preaching the truth, we read this in verse 18. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So the leaders bring Peter and John and say, listen, you are no longer allowed to preach about this Jesus. But Peter and John answered, 
Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We can't. You can tell us whatever you want to, but we can't help but telling the truth. Friends, we as God's people need to be a people committed to the truth no matter what it costs us. And it will cost you. It will cost you. Every single one of you in this room, if you are committed unwaveringly to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to the authority of his word, you need to know it will be costly. For some of you, it has already cost you greatly because people are offended by the truth. Again, what we need to be is defenders of the truth. Let them be offended by the truth, not by your obnoxious approach. You're going to have many opportunities. Listen, you are going to have many opportunities to either down play, water down the truth, or to outright deny it. You will. Maybe this week. There will be some job opportunities that might come your way with a good salary and good benefits that at the end of the day may cause you a moral dilemma because of what the nature of that job may be. And there you have your dilemma. Will I be a man of, or a woman of integrity and keep to my convictions because what this is calling me to do is, is to compromise my convictions? Family gatherings get really awkward quickly when you are a man or a woman of truth. Because we know we all have family that in some fashion we either want to compromise certain aspects of truth or outright deny it. It makes for awkward thanksgivings. You just want to talk about the turkey. It does. It makes for awkward Christmas gatherings or awkward other gatherings that you may have throughout the year because people know that you're this person, this one that claims to follow Jesus. And some of, listen, some of them may actually claim the same thing. I'm not talking about non-Christians. Yeah, that gets awkward, but I think that that's somewhat easier to deal with. Yeah, we know we're not on the same page because you're not a Christian. I claim to be a Christian, and so, yeah, there's a clear line. But I think the, the awkwardness gets is when these people claiming to be Christians and you claiming to be a Christian saying, I'm committed to the truth, and they're like, ah, I don't know that it should be necessarily that black and white. They want to justify the truth away. Friends, it would be so much easier for you just to be quiet. And there are appropriate times to speak and appropriate times to be quiet. But the reality is is that it's always going to be easier to be quiet when it comes to the truth. Your kids will like you better if you weren't radically committed to the truth of the gospel. That's just reality. Your kids will like you better if you will compromise Scripture. And praise God, we see kids being raised up in our families and in our church family that are, that are, that are being saved and, and coming to understand the truth of who God is and the truth of God's Word and, and love Jesus. But sometimes they don't understand it or sometimes they're not Christians and they don't, they don't get it. 
Compromise is always easier than offending people. That's just the truth. It's easier. It is easy to compromise because it costs you little. But when you stand on the truth of the gospel, when you are committed to the truth of who God is and what he's revealed in his word about who he is and about what the world's condition is and about the need for a savior, friends, we cannot afford to compromise. As individuals, we need to be men and women and children of God who radically committed to the truth of the gospel even if, even if, it cost us relationships and opportunities and awkwardness. We don't want that, but it will cost you. Truth must be defended. Again, be discerning. There's a clear opportunity when you must speak and when you need to remain silent, but don't always remain silent. The world is opposed to us many times, oftentimes, because of what we stand upon when it comes to the truth. Indeed, the very gospel itself is an offense. We read that in the Bible, don't we? You go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and, and you see that beginning in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly, foolishness, to those who are perishing. So those who are perishing in their sins, they see the gospel as absurd. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, stumbling block to the Jews and folly, foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For listen, listen, this is your hope. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Amen? The foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger the men. The gospel itself is an offense. It's deemed foolishness by the world. But it is the wisdom of God that grants us hope. It's an offended world. That's three. Number four, it's a comfortable world. Sometimes the world will show you signs of interest and even curiosity about the things that we proclaim. There was a small part of Herod, a small part, that was somewhat intrigued by John. You see that there. I mean, there was a point that he wanted to put John away permanently, but you see the, the wrestling of Herod's heart here. There was this small part of Herod that, that was intrigued Yet in the end, that curiosity gave way to comfort. The passage takes us back to when Herod had John killed. And, and again, at first he had him in prison because he feared the people. 
He didn't have him killed because he feared the people, because they held John to be a prophet. So then his comfort led him not to act upon what he really wanted to do. But then apparently had sort of had this fascination with John and this message he proclaimed. But, you know, then we come to this birthday party. And here is where we see the, the, the true nature of Herod on, on display. Now, this party would have been a big deal for the Roman leaders. The top brass would have been invited. The, the influential people would have been present. At this great celebration. But just for you to be able to see the depths of this family's depravity, we, we see this interesting thing transpire. Herod's stepdaughter enters the room where she dances before Herod and his guests. And friends, this is not any normal dance. This is not a square dance. This was no normal dance. The implication here is that this was a provocative dance. Because a person does not vow to give someone whatever they want unless it involves something of a provocative nature. Maybe you think square dancing is provocative, I don't know. But This was not just a simple dance. And so Herod makes that offer. Whatever you want, I will give it to you. Prompted by her mother, she says, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And it's as if, verse 9, time stops for Herod. As he heard that request, it's all as if every eye in the place was on him. What's he going to do? And he's sorry, we're told, verse 9. He's sorry. Is he going to spare John or is he going to grant the request? And I think verse 9 says it all. He was sorry, but, but because of his oaths, And his guests, he commanded it to be given. John is executed. All for the sake of Herod's comfort and status. Friends, that's a, what a tragic place to be. To have your conscience confronted with the truth, to even be giving, to even to begin having a level of admiration for the truth and an interest in the truth, only in the end to reject it for the sake of comfort. That's exactly what we're facing as Christians. The world that we are called to take the gospel to is a comfortable world. It likes its comfort. And while it may at times be intrigued by the things we preach and and interested in the things that we say and in the lives that we lived, at the end of the day, when it comes down to it, it likes status and comfort most and will always be default mode for, for the world. There are Herods in our families, in our workplaces, our schools, our neighborhoods. Some very close perhaps even to embracing the truth but when pressed they crumble to the pressure of cultural acceptance 
In Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, we read a, about Peter interacting with Jesus in verse 28. This is right on the heels of the, of the rich young man coming to Jesus, asking what he must do to have eternal, eternal life. Jesus walks him through that. And Jesus talks about how impossible it is for us to be saved, but with God all things are possible. And then verse 28, Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. We're not like this rich man. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. You see what Jesus is saying? He's saying that, Peter, it is costly to follow me. And you may very well lose friends and family and relationships that you value for my sake. But listen, be encouraged. When you suffer those things, when you lose those things, you will be given so much more. So much more. By God's grace, we need to raise up a generation of gospel servants that are willing to confront compromise at every level and comfort at every level and people, men, women, boys, and girls who joyfully stand on the truth of the gospel no matter, no matter what it costs us. You know, back in... Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And John lost his head. Friend, what are you willing to lose? What are you willing to lose for the cost, for the sake of Christ? You may never be called to lose your head or you may never be called to have your life threatened but you must be willing to lay down whatever Christ asks you to for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You must value Christ over anything else, over anyone else. You know, it could be that you're here today and and you... You actually, maybe as you think about this, you resemble Herod more than than anyone else in this text. Maybe you're here, and you're on the verge of bailing on the truth for the sake of comfort and status. It's just easier. Your life is so so much easier if you didn't commit yourself to this. And you're on the verge of bailing on Christ. And I would urge you and plead with you not to bail on Christ because he does not bail on you. And he is worth every sacrifice it takes 
He's worth it all. Don't bail on Jesus. Don't bail on him tomorrow when you're interacting with your classmates at school. Don't bail on him at work this week when you're engaged in those those iffy kinds of conversations. Don't bail on him when you're around those family members that it gets awkward. Don't bail on Jesus for the sake of comfort. Don't bail on Christ. A little comfort and status in this world is not worth it when you consider the eternal nature of judgment. Remember what Jesus said in John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were, not, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Following Jesus is costly. It will cost you many, many things. But friends, what we have awaiting us and the joys and blessings that Christ gives us even in the present far outweigh the sacrifices we are called to make. On the heels of Reformation Day, I love great quote of Martin Luther, the great reformer. He once said this, a religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing, is worth nothing. Let's pray. Father, we confess oftentimes that we fail when it comes to standing for your truth. And we would rather have comfort and ease than we would suffer. But Lord, would you remind us this morning that that Christ left the comfort of heaven to come and suffer greatly so that our lives could be saved and rescued. Would you help us see, Lord, that truly a servant is not greater than his master? And would you help us to see, Lord, the value and the, the value of suffering for the sake of your name, even when it cost us some of our closest relationships. Some of the things that we value greatly in this world, Lord, it will often cost us. But Lord, help us realize that, that Jesus is greater and Jesus is better than any comfort or even any relationship that we may enjoy on this earth. 
Father, there are men and women in this room right now. They are struggling. They are wrestling. Because of those awkward encounters, because of those relationships that they value, they want to stand for you and they don't know when to go too far or when they've gone too far or when to hold back and they wrestle with this, Lord. I've talked to them. I've I've seen in their eyes the love that they have for family members and friends that they care deeply for. But yet, have a calling to stand for Christ and the gospel and the truth of your word. Would you give them boldness? Would you give them strength and courage and humility? Do you help them to see that Christ is better? There's no compromise worth endangering our status with you. Father, there may be men and women in this room, children. Maybe they've been intrigued by the truth for some time and but are virtually on the verge of bailing on it. They just they don't know what to do with it. So it's just easier for them to slide back in the patterns and ways of this world than, than to give their lives for the truth. Lord, would you, would you stop them in their tracks? And would you give them eyes to see the glory that is in the gospel, the hope, the joy that is to be found in Christ that that will never be found in the comforts of this world, ever. Would you give them a foundation on which to stand and hope in their hearts and faith to cling to you. Father, you know where we are in this room. You know our struggles and you know the persecutions that even await us. Help us to be a w- people willing to count the cost. To take up our cross daily and follow you. Because you are glorified when your people do that. Lord, would you have your way in our hearts now? Would you help us to live a life that is worthy of the gospel? Of our sweet Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.